The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, what a wonderful privilege we have to look to God's Word together. We are in the book of Acts, written 28 chapters in our English Bible, written by Luke, who was an associate of the Apostle Paul and actually served with the Apostle Paul on some of his missionary journeys. So some of the events that we're going to see in Acts that take place and are recorded, Luke was actually there. He was a firsthand witness. We haven't encountered Luke yet as we've completed 14 chapters, but we will. Oh, we've been learning a lot. On the outline there, I put the title of the sermon today, The Historic Jerusalem Council. Acts chapter 15, The Historic Jerusalem Council. Chapter 15 in this event called the Jerusalem Council. Some call it the Ecumenical Jerusalem Council. It really is historic in uh, the foundation of the church, the history of the church. It was absolutely pivotal. And it was a providential event that took place, superintended by Almighty God and His Spirit and the early apostles to finalize laying the foundation of the church and how it would continue in perpetuity in terms of its, its ministry and mission. This council, the historic Jerusalem council, or that word I used, ecumenical. Ecumenical is a word commonly used to describe the events in chapter 15 at the Jerusalem council. Ecumenical can mean a lot of different things. Uh, it means universal. Uh, it means gathering together. And in a church context, it usually means gathering together universally apart from denominational loyalties and alliances. So it's all Christians getting together despite your background or, or local things that might make you distinctive or separate you. And so you have a universal coming together of Christians who are like-minded on some of the most fundamental and foundational truths in Christianity Namely, that the Bible is the Word of God. Jesus is the Savior. That's their common ground. And they gather together in an ecumenical council, all these different perspectives, Christians of different ethnicities and upbringings and persuasions. But there is a common conviction that they hold. And usually uh, the council is convened. It's formal. They deliberate. And they're dealing with usually a specific problem, a specific issue that has created debate and division among believers. And that's exactly what we have here in 1 Corinthians 15, this council that assembles that's ecumenical and that it involves more than just one local church. It involves several local churches and several pastors and several church leaders are involved. They convene, they deliberate, they discuss, they debate, there's a theological matter at hand. This was the first ecumenical council in church history. It's the only one in the book of Acts. It's the only one in the Bible. It's the only one where apostles participated. There have been ecumenical councils all throughout church history, some in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th uh, centuries especially, where churches from all over gathered together to deal with other theological matters. So we're going to look at this historic council 
that I think definitively answered some of the most important questions about what Christianity is and what the gospel is. Uh, if you were to summarize chapter 15, coming up with the title, there's a lot of different options because there's different themes weaving throughout this chapter. Chapter 15, one of the points of emphasis I think that God's trying to make clear is regarding what he believes about the Gentiles. The word Gentile occurs all throughout the chapter, um, starting in verse 1 is they're talking to Gentiles, verse 3, all the way throughout the chapter. So Gentiles are definitely the theme, and God renders a verdict that Gentiles are candidates for the gospel, can be saved by Jesus, also constitute the body of Christ, the church, and are equal heirs to eternal heaven with Almighty God. They are indeed forgiven of sin through the gospel just like anyone else, just like the Jews were. So there's a big emphasis here on Gentiles. Uh, another motif that goes throughout chapter 15, it's a chapter of division or dissension. And this is in the church among believers, or at least among professing believers, all parties involved, and there's dissension going on. There are four examples of that specifically. I just want to give you a big picture overview first before we delve into the details because that will help you in terms of the context. We're not going to get through all 29 verses, by the way, in this very, probably the most important chapter in, in the book of Acts. But it's a chapter of dissension and division. Just four examples in this chapter. Verse 2. Paul and Barnabas came back from their first missionary trip. Uh, now they're at the church at Antioch that sent them. And it says, Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate. Paul is getting into a very heated argument with some other fellow professing Christians that are not from Antioch. Now, also not stated explicitly in chapter 15, but stated in the book of Galatians, at the same time, there's another dissension debate going on, and that's Paul with Peter. They're going toe-to-toe, head-to-head, mano a mano. Where Paul says in Galatians that at this same time, and around A.D. 50, that's when this happens, chapter 15, about A.D. 50, Paul just finished his first missionary trip, and Paul comes back with Barnabas there at Antioch. That's the church that sent them. They're debriefing. They're saying all the great, wonderful things that God has done through their ministry. They're celebrating the salvation of Gentiles through the gospel. And for whatever reason, the Apostle Peter comes up 300 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch when Paul and Barnabas come home from their first missionary trip. That is not in Acts chapter 15. That is in the book of Galatians chapter 2. Peter came to Antioch. And Peter is there and he's celebrating with Paul and Barnabas the the salvation of Gentiles and he's eating with them and having fellowship with them. Uh, And then Peter becomes two-faced and hypocritical and when some legalistic Jews come along, Peter turns on the saved Gentiles. And then Paul confronts Peter to his face in front of the entire church. This happened at the same time. More dissension. Got ugly. So here's Paul arguing with these professing Christian leaders from Jerusalem in verse 2. Then at the same time, he's already arguing with Peter, the head apostle from Jerusalem. Then they have this council where they all meet, the apostles, the elders, Paul, Barnabas, uh, leaders from other churches are gathered. A lot of people here. Verse 7 of chapter 15, it says, and there was much debate. We don't know how long this went on. This could have gone on for days. This could have gone on for weeks. Much debate. It is emphatic. 
uh, voices got loud. People got passionate. They were arguing over very important theological matters. And Paul was involved in that. So Paul's three for three in terms of being involved in dissension and debate with people, other professing Christians throughout this chapter. There's three. And then at the end of the chapter, when the council is settled, it renders its verdict, and Paul and Barnabas are ready to go on the next missionary trip. Whoa, we got another problem, and there's another uh, dissension, debate, or dispute, and that's uh, at the end of chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas are ready to go out for their next missionary journey. Barnabas wants to take John Mark, and Paul says, no way. He abandoned us, uh, and they had, it says, a bitter disagreement, sharp disagreement, verse 39 of chapter 15. So that's four very bitter debates and dissension and arguments that Paul is in in chapter 15. This one is with Barnabas, his good friend, his missionary partner. It was so bitter, they did not find common ground about what they should do with John Mark or not. And so that split up their missionary team. There was division in the ranks. And so Barnabas took John Mark. Fine, Paul doesn't want to take John Mark. Then I'll take John Mark myself. And they leave, and they go on their own missionary trip. And then Paul says, fine, I'm taking Silas with me. And then Paul goes off on his missionary trip. So... Uh, it is a, a chapter of conflict. I just wanted you to be aware of that because the context is so important. Uh, other big picture things. I already said that here we are in Acts chapter 15. It is now A.D. 50. This is 15 years after Jesus started the church, 15 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, 15 years after Pentecost, probably about 10 years after the Apostle Paul got saved, uh, also about 10 years since Peter took the gospel to the first Gentile, Cornelius, that we read about in Acts chapter 10. Um, Acts chapter 15, Paul and uh, Barnabas are now just finishing their first missionary trip, which we said was Acts 13 and 14, sent out from the city of Antioch, traveled 1,200 miles, visited the island of Cyprus where Barnabas was from, went up to Asia Minor where Paul was from, uh, traveled 1,200 miles, it took them two years, went to many cities, many synagogues, planted a lot of churches. Sometimes they went into a pagan city where there were no Jews and no synagogue and preached the gospel there. It was grueling, it was brutal. They had to confront the Mediterranean Sea, bandits on the road, wild animals, opposition from unbelieving Jews in particular who tried to kill Paul on more than one occasion, thought they were successful on at least one occasion where they stoned him, but they thought was to death, left him dead on the road. He recovered and revived from that and continued to persevere. Just a brutal trip, harrowing, very trying. First missionary trip. They'd never been on one like this. And their, their partner, John Mark, who started out with them, abandoned them probably one-third of the way into the trip. And so they come back. They saw God do great things, especially with the gospel, to Gentiles, because that was Paul's focus. God called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, so he's going to many of these Gentile, Greek, Roman, pagan cities, pagan towns. And if there are a group of Jews, he preaches the gospel there. No matter what, he will go on to the Gentiles and preach and evangelize and proselytize and, if possible, establish a local church and try to train up leaders, establish leaders and encourage them and then appoint elders if anybody is qualified. And so after two years, he's got several... Churches that he has left in his wake, God bless the ministry. Hundreds, if not thousands of people have been exposed to the gospel and have responded positively to the gospel, the majority of which are Gentiles. 
And so Paul and Barnabas, it says at the end of chapter 14 where we left off, they come back to Antioch, they gather the whole church together, and they tell the whole church all about the missionary trip, how, how it went, how God blessed and did amazing things. Verse 27 of chapter 14, when they had arrived and gathered the church together at Antioch, they began to report all things that God had done with them, Paul and Barnabas, and how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. This is awesome. This is unique. This is a new thing God is doing. This is in contrast to the first five years of the church from Acts chapter 1 to about Acts chapter 8, where, get this, over the course of five years, the Christian church was primarily, almost exclusively, a Jewish church. Everybody getting saved in Jerusalem, 3,000 and 5,000 and then 10,000 and it's exploding. These are all Jews being converted to Christianity. They're fulfilled Jews. And then all throughout Judea. And then even in Samaria where there are half Jews. So for the first five years, it, it's not a Gentile and Jewish church. It's not a mixed church. It's one ethnicity. It's monolithic. And it's exciting, but those who used to be Jews who are now Christians, they're kind of used to that. Oh, this is the church. Been around for five years. They're looking around. Oh, everybody looks the same. Everybody speaks the same. Everybody knows Hebrew. Everybody grew up in a synagogue. Everybody uh, grew up with a scrupulous religion uh, but biting by the Mosaic law, everybody actually grew up as a Jew, a practicing Jew, trying to follow and obey the 633 commands of the Old Testament. Some theological, some very practical, the way you cut the locks on your hair if you're a young man, the clothes that you wear and how you couldn't mix two fibers or fabrics together, uh, the dishes that you used and what they touched last and were they clean, how you interacted with Gentiles, all the laws and rules. And if you're a male and if you're a female, circumcision, that was the first Mosaic law that you obeyed as you entered into the world. If you were a male, you got, bat, uh, you got circumcised on the eighth day. That was a literally outward sign and command that you are a part of God's believing community. And so for the first five years, everyone's doing the same thing. This is the routine. So everybody that's a Christian, for the most part, they came to know Jesus Christ. They became Christians by believing in the gospel by grace through faith. But just about every one of them had at some point previously lived a life committed to obeying all the laws of the Mosaic law, getting circumcised, some even erroneously at one time or another thinking that you could attain God's favor by obeying the law until they got clarity on the gospel that it's by grace through faith apart from works. So that's the background. That the early Christians... I could see, or you could see why they thought, well, the church, it's a Jewish church. That's what the church is. And the 12 apostles that laid the foundation of the church, they were all Jewish men. They were all raised as legalistic, committed, synagogue-going, as I said, scrupulous Jewish men, trained in the synagogue, circumcised, every one of them. Jesus himself, their master, the teacher, the say, Jesus was born a Jew. Jesus was circumcised. Jesus was committed to obeying and following the Mosaic law all 33 years of his life. Even when the, the church began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they didn't abandon their Judaism. They were now fulfilled Jews. There was continuity between the Mosaic law and Jesus, the Messiah, and the church. And so they continue, even after getting saved, they continued to, get this, go to the temple. They continue to practice many of the Jewish laws, yet with a new perspective in light of Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. They didn't just abandon and jettison all things Jewish. Quite the contrary. 
doing it with new zeal, new enthusiasm, because now they thought they understood the deeper meaning of true Judaism fulfilled by Christ. Contrast that with now Johnny come lately, the Apostle Paul, who comes five, six, who is saved five or six years after the church starts. He used to be a persecutor of the church. He gets saved supposedly, comes down to Jerusalem, and the church in Jerusalem, they are afraid of him. They don't trust him or believe him. They don't want it. They're, they're not going to let him into their house. He's being sneaky. He's lying. And then Barnabas had to intervene. No, he's telling the truth. He really got saved. Then he's there only for two weeks, and then he's gone. He's gone for years. Where did that Paul Saul, Saul guy go? Then more years go by, and then Barnabas hunts this Saul Paul guy down and doesn't bring him down to Jerusalem, brings him to Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Brings him to Antioch. What's that? That is a pagan city. It's not a Jewish city. It's a cosmopolitan headquarters of the pagan world. And before Barnabas got there, some unnamed evangelists went there and were sharing the gospel with Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, pagans, immoral people. And people are getting saved. They're believing the gospel of Jesus Christ at this Gentile church. There are a spattering of Jews, but not many. It's predominantly Gentile people getting saved. The apostles down at headquarters hear about this. Wow, did you hear? There's like a revival going up in that cosmopolitan, multicultural, Gentile, pagan, Roman city up there in Antioch. People, apparently, people are like getting saved through the gospel, man. We've got to check that out. Barnabas, and so the apostles send Barnabas. Barnabas, you need to go up there and check it out. See if it's legit. Find out what's going on. Who's in charge? Who's the leadership? What's the church all about? So Barnabas goes up there investigates thoroughly, and Barnabas is pleased, he is satisfied, he's rejoicing, and God God indeed is doing a legitimate work here. He reports that to the apostles back at headquarters in Jerusalem, and they all praise God. Amen. They're on board. Barnabas remains there as a shepherd, as a pastor. He ends up there, and he can't do it by himself because it is an exploding megachurch there at Antioch. So he needs help. So he goes and recruits Paul or Saul, who hasn't been seen for years. And Barnabas successfully brings Saul, Paul, back And there, Paul and Barnabas and three other men, five guys, end up being pastors and shepherds and teachers of the church at Antioch, the Gentile church, the new hub of Christianity for the next entire year. The church keeps growing in the Lord, and they get to a point where they can actually send missionaries. So they send Paul and Barnabas out and commend them to the Lord, and Paul and Barnabas go out for two years on their missionary journey. Great success. And the emphasis of Paul's ministry is preaching to Gentiles, not Jews. And as Paul's going around... The essence of his message, I'll just quote you what Paul is preaching for two years, city after city after city after city, with every person he sees, every Gentile he runs into. He's saying the same thing to them. He talks about they're sinners, they need salvation, they need a Savior. God has answered that prayer. And we, verse 32 of Acts 13, here's what Paul is preaching. We, me and Barnabas, preach to you the good news. That's what Paul was preaching. What was he preaching? The good news. Good news. The gospel. Good news means, or gospel means good news. That's the word. That's all he preached. The good news. The good news was to counter the bad news. If you're going to tell somebody the good news, you need to tell them the bad news. The good news is the solution, but you've got to give them the diagnosis. 
There is good news that it's for you. It's from a gracious God. It's from the creator God. It's from God, the judge and savior. There is good news for you from him. But you've got to know the bad news to understand it. The bad news is you are a sinner. I am a sinner. We were born dead in our sins, separated from God. He's a holy creator. He must punish sin. The consequence of sin is death, physical, spiritual, and eternal. And we can't get right with God on our own. He is the only one that can initiate a right relationship. He's the only one that can repair it. He is the only one that can save us from our sin that separates us from him as the creator. And he's willing to do that. And it's not anything that you do or I do. It's not human works. Human works cannot accomplish that. It is a divine work done only by God. It is his prerogative. He, he initiates salvation. And it is strictly through his mere grace. Because we don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve being rescued from our sin and the judgment of hell. But God is a good God. He is a loving God. He is merciful. And the good news is he offers this plan to sinners that they might be rescued from their sin, forgiven of all their sin, and the judgment of eternal hell removed, and that they might be adopted into the family of God, totally forgiven of all sin, and their future is an eternity with God in heaven forever. That is the good news. And it only comes through the work of Jesus Christ, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ, who is eternal. Jesus Christ, who is uncreated. Jesus Christ, who has always existed with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus Christ, who existed as the triune God with the Father and the Spirit before anything was ever created, before the angels existed. Jesus Christ, who didn't have a body in eternity past. Jesus Christ, who was spirit in eternity past, but came down willingly to this earth that he created, born through Mary as a virgin, to be the God-man, 100% God, 100% human, coming to be a sacrifice for sinners for the one purpose of growing up, living sin-free, and going to a torture stake or a cross where he would be crucified as a criminal, even though he never did anything wrong, not by mistake, not by a messed-up plan, Jesus Christ planned his own death with the Father and the Spirit before the world began. Jesus came down here to die, willingly, on the cross, as a substitute for sinners. So that when Jesus was on the cross being crucified, God the Father in heaven was doing a spiritual transaction of pouring all of his fury and wrath and hatred for sin on Jesus when Jesus was on the cross. And Jesus died willingly, absorbing the infinite wrath of a holy God onto himself as the God man, as the Lamb of God, as a substitute for sinners. And anybody that believed that Jesus was the Lamb of God, that he was the sole source of forgiveness of sin, and that they recognized that he was more than a man, he was the God man, the Lord of the universe, and the only way that they can be saved and a holy Savior, and they cry out to him and ask him for forgiveness of sin, not by anything that they do, but mere faith in his grace that he's offered by dying in their place. So that the simple prayer is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Lord Jesus, save my soul. I believe in you, Lord Jesus, as the Savior, as the God-man, that you absorbed the wrath of the Father, that you died for the sin of the world, that you are the only way, the only truth, and the only life, the only way to the Father in heaven. You are the exclusive and only Savior. I believe that, Lord Jesus. I can't save myself. I cry out to you. Please save my soul. And you believe that? You understand it? You pray it in faith? God instantaneously answers that prayer. He saves you. 
It's a supernatural transaction. God the Father looks down from heaven and he doesn't see a dirty, despicable sinner anymore. He sees you pristine, forgiven, totally clean, as white as snow. Actually, he looks upon you and he sees Jesus Christ himself in all his glory. Because you now have been adopted into the family of God. You have been justified. That means God the judge renders an official formal verdict that you are not just not guilty. You are innocent. Innocent. Even though we don't deserve it. Man, that is good news. That is good news. That is the message that Paul preached. Now, notice in that elaborated, detailed definition of what is called the gospel, the good news, it's a very specific message. Specific content. There are things you can't leave out of the gospel message. Paul summarizes it in 1 Corinthians 15. That Christ, you've got to talk about Jesus and who he is, died what his death means. It was substitutionary. It was warranted. It was deserved for sinners. Sin. You've got to talk about sin. That he was buried in accordance with scriptures. This was God's eternal plan. He was raised again the third day by himself, by the Spirit, by the Father, in accordance with scripture. And that salvation comes only by believing in what Jesus did. Not what I do, not what you do, not what any human does. Salvation is 100% solely the work of God. So here, that's the message Paul's preaching, Paul and Barnabas. And they're giving this message to Gentiles wherever they go. Notice in the message, never did I say, oh, and by the way, just like I did when I was a young boy, eight days old, I got circumcised, because that's what God required in the, the law. And I had to obey uh, the, ten, or the 630 commandments of the Mosaic law my whole life until I heard about Jesus. And in order to become a Christian, yes, you got to believe in Jesus as the Savior. you got to believe in the good news. But you also got to get circumcised. Because, after all, I had to get circumcised. And all the apostles, they had to get circumcised. And all the Christians in Jerusalem, they all got circumcised. And they all had to obey the Mosaic Law their whole life. They couldn't just live any way they wanted to their whole life. And then at the 11th hour, oh, I believe in Jesus and get saved. They had to care about morality. And they had to fear a holy God named Yahweh. Just not living willy-nilly. Jesus himself got circumcised. So that wasn't a part of Paul's message. He's giving them the good news, which is the answer to sin that condemns the soul. But he's doing it apart from requiring that they become Jews first. And also that they are required to get circumcised. He's not saying that. And he's been doing this for two years. Actually, he's been doing it for more than two years. People are now familiar with what Paul has been preaching. Word is getting out. Revivals are happening in all these Gentile cities wherever he goes, all over Cyprus and that whole island. The governor, a total, absolute Roman pagan, non-Jew, Sergius Paulus, was the governor of the massive island of Cyprus, heard the simple gospel and got saved. And he was not required by Paul. Well, by the way, you got to go to temple and you got to get circumcised and you got to, you know, you got to kind of obey those uh, laws in the Old Testament. You know, we believe in the New Testament and the Old Testament. So you got to do that too. He didn't say that. It was just that simple, pure gospel. And Paul's going around and there are revivals and words getting out. It's going through the network. Words getting down to Jerusalem and headquarters. The apostles are hearing it. They're like, wow, this is, uh, actually they're responding. They don't know what to think, actually. Peter's hearing this. The other 11 apostles are hearing this. James, the half-brother of the Lord, who is now the de facto leader of the Jerusalem church, even passed up Peter in terms of leadership. Jesus' half-brother, James. They're hearing this. Wow, 
Oh, that's great, I think, that Gentiles are being saved. Wow, there's revivals going on. Yeah, Paul and Barnabas, they're doing a bang-up job, I think. It's good, isn't it? So they're hearing about the revival. At the same time, somebody's whispering in their ear bad things. You know that Paul guy, the Johnny-come-lately, the rogue apostle, not one of the twelve, didn't serve with Jesus for three and a half years, got saved later? You know the guy that used to kill Christians, that guy? Yeah, he's up there telling Gentiles they can be saved just by believing in Jesus and the gospel. And he's not even requiring them to obey Moses in the Old Testament. Can you believe that? Hey, we all had to get circumcised and we're Christians. Well, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What? Why is Paul doing that? So this began. that's what began to percolate. These seeds of doubt, these seeds of compromising the simplicity of the God. That's what's going on and brewing in headquarters in Jerusalem. We don't know where it came from, where the poison came from. But it did. And it first it started as a seed, and then it began to grow. And then Satan comes in behind the scenes satanically and spiritually and invisibly, and he starts fanning the flame, dividing the church in Jerusalem, questioning the ministry of the apostle Paul. He is different. He is unique. He calls himself an apostle to the Gentiles. He didn't even consort with us, the apostles, to get information that we learned in three and a half years of seminary from Jesus. Where did he get all his information, by the way? And he's saying new, weird stuff that Jesus never talked about. And that's why Paul was getting all kinds of opposition. Paul's getting opposition from unbelieving Jews who want to kill him. He's also getting opposition from Christians in the church for a lot of different reasons. If it's not Gentiles who think he's he's small, he's unimpressive, he's small in stature, he's not erudite like Apollos, he's not authoritative, they're questioning that. The Gentile Christian. And then there's the Jerusalem Christians questioning Paul, undermining his ministry because, hmm, is he really an apostle? He's not Jewish. He's not, he's not, uh, honoring the Mosaic law. He's getting it from all sides. Yet he continues to persevere. So all of that background comes to a head here in chapter 15 at this historic Jerusalem council. So here's Paul and Barnabas when they're coming home from a very successful two-year first missionary journey and they're coming home to their home church and they're having a sabbatical and they're having sweet fellowship and they're giving testimonies. Man, you should have seen all the people that got saved. Can you believe the, the Roman governor of Cyprus that I, he got saved? He just believed it was amazing. And oh man, some of the things we confronted, we got, we met this demonically uh, possessed guy named Elimus and he was scary and I, I had to take him down actually. Uh, God allowed me to give him blindness on the spot. But he needed it. We had to shut him down. So Paul and Barnabas, they're sharing all these stories. And the church is just praising God. God, thank you for opening the door to the Gentiles. Should be time of celebration. While they are having this sabbatical and the celebration at the end of chapter 14, like I said, Peter, because Peter got around. Peter went to the coast uh, of Mediterranean. He went to Joppa. So he was a missionary himself, kind of locally, Samaria and surrounding regions. So he got around. And so Peter head apostle, goes up to Antioch, no doubt to check it out, to see and hear about the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. And so uh, Peter goes up there, and so during the sabbatical, there's Peter, head apostle, Paul and Barnabas, and they're all celebrating. They are rejoicing. I mentioned it earlier that Peter was very comfortable with Gentiles now. God taught him a very difficult lesson in Acts chapter 10. By the way, Peter, he was prejudiced growing up. He really was. And that came from being sinful. The Old Testament wasn't prejudiced, but Peter as a sinner was, and many of the Jews were. They just 
were born and raised to think the Gentiles were dirty and unclean and that the Jews were just the higher rank of people. That's all there is to it. And yeah, you could be a God-fearer and kind of join a church and come to our synagogue and yeah, even get circumcised if you want, but you're not really a pure Jew. You're a lower class. I like you. God loves you. You're in the Old Testament. You come from the loins of Abraham. Yeah, I know. Genesis 12. But you know, you're just a little lower on the echelon of uh, who has a pleasing relationship to God who is Yahweh, the Jewish God who speaks Hebrew. And so, and Peter even said in his own testimony, when God had to confront him finally, I mean, Jesus had been confronting Peter for years to not be prejudiced. We see it in the Gospels. We see it in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the only Gospel, by the way, that says that Jesus declared all foods clean. Which is kind of interesting because Mark was dependent upon Peter for that information. And that was a lesson Peter had to learn the hard way. So Peter grew up uh, very Jewish. He said, I've never touched or eaten anything unclean, God, and you know that. I'm not going to do it now. He thought Gentiles were unclean, but then he became a Christian. So then he had to, you know, a soft heart towards Gentiles. And then God showed him that vision as that sheet came down out of heaven of the unclean food. And God said, Peter, rise up, kill and eat. And he had to say it three times. Peter finally got the message. And God said, Peter, I'm not just talking about food. I'm talking about people. Because you used to think the Gentiles were unclean like this food is unclean. What God has made clean is not unclean. Don't reject it. You need to have a fully, 100% open heart to Gentiles as prospects of the gospel. And then Peter said, Amen. Okay, Lord, I surrender. I do. And then in chapter 10 and chapter 11, Peter goes on to minister and he actually believes that. He's operating accordingly. He's been won over by new revelation from God and conviction. So it's like, oh, okay, good. Peter's got this down. Well, then Peter goes home from his missionary journey where he got to minister to Gentiles. Cornelius, the Gentile, got saved. And Peter goes back to Jerusalem and says, man, you should have seen I'm preaching the gospel. And even Gentiles got saved. But the leadership in Jerusalem wasn't going, yay, and they're celebrating. They were, uh, what? And that's, let me, let me read this because it's so important. Acts chapter 11 says, now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God through Peter. And Peter's giving a report to the church of Jerusalem. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with Peter. These are Christians, professing Christians who were circumcised, took issue with Peter. Jewish Christians. And they took issue with Peter over the fact that, wow, you're preaching the gospel to Gentiles. You're saying that Gentiles in Christ can be equal to Jews. What are you thinking, Peter? That is wrong. And Peter had to set them straight, and he did. Uh, verse 3, they keep uh, debating with Peter. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? That's dirty. And Jesus said, nope, nope, nope. God gave me a vision. Here's the truth. They're saved through the grace of God just like we are. And then after he tells that whole vision story, listen to how the critical Jerusalem, pharisaical, legalistic Jews responded to Peter's testimony. Uh, he tells them uh, God saved them. Uh, and when they heard this, Verse 18, and when the Jerusalem Jews who took Peter to task heard Peter's testimony, it says they quieted down. That's, well, is that encouraging? Well, kind of, sort of. They stopped yelling and screaming for his blood. Oh. They quieted down. Well, and they also glorified God. Saying, well, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Now, it could very well be there was a remnant in there that just quieted down and weren't praising God. They, they just were silent. They didn't say anything. Passive aggressive. Hmm. And then the rest of them were, yay, praising God. Gentiles are in. 
That was a huge transition in the history of the church and the ministry of the apostles that Gentiles are now in. But it's not on a whole scale basis. It's like, okay, we're still predominantly Jewish. That's the way the church. And we got this guy, Cornelius. Yeah, he's a Gentile, but he was a God-fearer. He went to synagogue. He knows uh, Aramaic and Hebrew. He's even considered circumcision. He, he believes in the God Yahweh. So he's kind of a semi-Jew. Anyway, all right, we'll let him in. And he's got a few family members. Okay. So it was a very small crowd of people. That's very different than what Paul was doing. Now, it is very possible that what Paul's ministry is doing, because he's going throughout the entire world, is that not before too long, the majority of the Christian church could be Gentile for the first time in history. That is what the one of the things I think that the Judaizers feared. And they're going to try to put a stop to it. And they're going to do anything they can to put a stop to it. So let's go ahead and look at chapter 15. And we're just going to actually begin because you needed that background information because it is so complicated, especially as the book of Galatians plays into this because the book of Galatians is really a commentary behind the scenes on Acts 15. So we're just going to introduce it here and then we'll pick up next week as we flow through the chapter of points one through four. Um, by the way, Paul and Barnabas get home in about 48 A.D. after a two-year trip. The Jerusalem Council is in 50 A.D. In about 49 A.D., Paul pens Galatians. Those are the churches, he, the cities he just visited. And the controversy has already erupted. He's probably already had his debate with these pharisaical Judaizers that came and intruded on his church in Antioch. He hears about, oh, wow, this isn't just in Antioch. This is going on in the Galatian churches, too. And then Paul writes Galatians uh, to tell the Christians in Galatia, what in the world are you doing? Who are you listening to? And so he's writing Galatians probably as he's on his way to the Jerusalem Council, chapter 15. That's the context. And we're going to read some very important excerpts from there in just a minute. But uh, let's just go away by way of introduction. We'll start on the first point here. And that's the heretical allegation is what started the whole mess. The heretical allegation. It's not a first-time allegation either. Seeds of this were being sprinkled, watered. Cold, planted, protected for years. We saw the, the response 10 years ago when Peter said he was ministering to Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. 10 years later, we thought it was put to rest. Peter explained it. He's an apostle. He's the head apostle. He got divine revelation. He declared it to the whole church publicly with apostolic authority. That's the way it is. A lot of the crowd said, amen, that settles it. And yet some are sitting there, no doubt, thinking, yeah, I'm silent, but I'm not speaking up right now. I resist. And God is going to use, I mean, Satan's going to use those bad seeds to create division in the church in Acts 15 and beyond. So let's look at chapter 15. We'll just read the first five verses. Here's the problem. Paul and Barnabas, they're enjoying their sabbatical. Peter's there as their guest at the church at Antioch. By the way, Peter, I mean, Paul and Barnabas are the official, bona fide, God-sanctioned, leaders of the church of Antioch, along with other men, at least three other men. They have a team of elders, team of pastors, team of teachers. Peter is a guest, although he's an apostle. So he has authority over all the churches through divine revelation from God. So it's a unique situation. We don't have apostles today. But the local pastors assigned to Antioch are Paul and Barnabas. That's their jurisdiction for the time being. Peter is their guest, although he's an apostle. Good to have you here, Peter. We're having missions month. You can be our guest. Give your testimony. Oh, great. Look at all these Gentiles. This is awesome. 
Where's the buffet line? Oh, this is the fellowship meal. Yeah, you guys eat weird food, but I'll, I'll eat it. I like your desserts. Good to have you here, Peter. So Peter's just, he's getting along great for now. Then, uh-oh, chapter 15, let me read verses 1 through 5. During the ministry uh, mission sabbatical, some men and some men are, but some men, they are unnamed. They are scoundrels. They're professing Christians. Came down from Judea. They actually, on the map, they went up, they went up north, but Judea was like the highest place in Israel geographically. So you'd go down a hill to everywhere else from Judea. So they went down the hill from Judea up north to Antioch, 300 miles. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren at the church at Antioch. It's kind of, that's kind of weird. What were they teaching? Well, here's the main point. Unless you are circumcised Gentile, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, they had no little debate with them. That's what the text says. It's emphatic. It's the beginning of the verse. Paul and Barnabas had no little debate and dissension with these guys, these unnamed men, whoever they are. Then the brethren at Antioch, the believers, the saints at Antioch, determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue about circumcision. Do Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to get saved? Verse 3, therefore, being sent on their way by the church, so Paul and Barnabas agreed, okay. And then so the church formally sent Paul and Barnabas, man, you need to go to the apostles in Jerusalem and, wow, talk about this issue and get this thing settled. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church formally, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria. Those were areas where Philip evangelized and and others, and there were churches there and saints there, Jews and half-Jews and some Gentiles. And Paul and Barnabas were describing along the way to these churches and to these Christians in detail the conversion of the Gentiles from their first missionary trip. And they were bringing great joy to all the brethren who heard about it. So there's a consensus there along the way. Paul's kind of winning a following along the way of how Gentiles got saved, not through circumcision, but through the glorious gospel. Verse 4. And then finally, Paul and Barnabas arrive at Jerusalem and the rest of the uh Groups are, arrive at Jerusalem for this great Jerusalem council overseen by the apostles and moderated by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And the, get this, they were, re, they were received by the church. That's a formal welcome. Paul and Barnabas, brothers in the Lord, formally received. God bless you, Apostle Paul. They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. So they are unanimously accepted, and they reported, Paul and Barnabas reported all that God had done with them on their most recent missionary trip for two years to the Gentiles. So they were allowed to speak and give their testimony, verse 5. But, ooh, problem, there's a rebuttal. But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. Okay, so these are Pharisees, they heard the gospel, they got saved. I believe in Jesus. They are Christians, or at least they claim to be Christians. They're recognized as Christians. They've been a part of the Jerusalem Christian church. This is like Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. He heard the gospel, eventually got saved. He was a fulfilled Pharisee, a Christian Pharisee. That's what these guys claim to be. We believe in Jesus. We believe in the gospel. They're not hard-hearted, unbelieving Jews. They are believing 
Pharisees. But their hub apparently was Jerusalem. They apparently had some reputation. They stood up and they're allowed to have a saying at this council. And they said, it is necessary. They're not mincing words. It is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles. And then they add to it. First, they said, you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now they add to it and they say, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the Mosaic law. Wow. Not only circumcision, the first law required, especially for a male, but all the other 632 other laws. Plus believing in Jesus. They weren't denying Jesus. It's Jesus plus. This was confusing. This should have been a no-brainer for Peter. Peter had apostle. From his, from all the teaching he got from Jesus, from the vision he had from Almighty God, from his public declaration in Acts chapter 11, 10 years prior, from his visit to Paul and Barnabas up at the church at Antioch, and the revival he just witnessed, this should have been a no-brainer for Peter. Sit down. You are wrong. You're undermining the gospel. You're polluting salvation. You're leading people to hell. That is a compromise. This is the gospel at stake. This isn't some tangential third-level doctrine that doesn't matter. This is how souls get saved. So it is amazing that the apostles in Jerusalem actually give these guys an audience. They are confused. They have to deliberate about it. Verse 6, and the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. So they have a private session. Man, we got to hash this out. Wow. What do we do? When it should have been a no-brainer. This is a no-brainer for Paul. I mean, you talk about a scrupulous, legalistic, law-abiding, synagogue-going Jew. Paul was the quintessential example. Why does he not have a hang-up about this? He, of all people, he, he would bleed Jew. He, of all people, should have been sensitive about this and upset about it, but he's not. He, he is the most stable of all. He is the most clear thinking of all. He is the strongest. He is the most opinionated on this. This is the strongest conviction. It's clear in his mind. Why, why is Paul the Jew so clear and all these other Jews are kind of wishy-washy on the matter? Oh, wow, do we? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. These guys, no doubt, were probably making arguments like, well, after all, I mean, you're, you had to be Jewish before you became a Christian, right, Peter? Well, uh, well, yeah, well yeah, yeah. Well, Peter, you got circumcised, didn't you, before you became a Christian, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you too, James, right? Yeah, well, John over there, yeah, didn't you have to get circumcised? Yeah. Well, didn't your Savior Jesus have to get circumcised? Did he not get circumcised and obey the law and teach in the temple and do all things Jew? Well, yeah, yeah, and they celebrated the, the, the Passover? Well, yeah, just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had a very persuasive case that they were arguing to the apostles. And you know what? Peter started to cave. Peter's not the only one that started to cave. Look at Galatians chapter 2. Here's what was going on behind the scenes. Galatians chapter 2. We'll probably close with this and then pick it up next week. Okay, here's Paul. Writing to the Galatians. This is about the same time. He probably wrote this just before he arrived in Jerusalem at the council. And these guys came up and invaded his church. Whoever these guys were. For whatever reason, these guys were allowed to teach in his church. Can you imagine? Here at Grace Bible Fellowship, if some guys just waltzed in and said, uh, 
Can we teach your Sunday school classes for the next three months? Oh, by the way, Pastor Cliff, can I, can I borrow the pulpit for three weeks? Sure. Wait, who are you? I'm from such and such a church. Well, they, they, there was at least a reputation that allowed them a foot in the door. Because no doubt they said, well, actually, we're from the church in Jerusalem. We're from the apostles. Oh, I know Peter. He's a good friend. Uh, we got saved on the day of Pentecost. Uh, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We actually teach Sunday school classes there at the church in Jerusalem. And I get to preach on Sunday nights when Peter's sick. And uh, good friends with James, the brother of the Lord. As a matter of fact, James, I, talk, I told James, the brother of the Lord, the head of the Jerusalem church, that we were coming up to see you guys, Paul and Barman. Did you know? I did. But James knows I'm here. Oh, he, James knows you're here at our church. Yeah, James knows we're here. Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. All right. Well, yeah, join us for Philip. Sure. Yeah, maybe we got an opening spot for you. Teach a Bible study here and whatever. Well, they did. They start teaching, infiltrating the church. This is a huge church. It's a mega church. We don't know how many of these guys are. Are there three of them or are there 30 of them? But they have one mission. They are clear. They are infiltrating the church. And this is their main thing that they're teaching. The You need to get circumcised. You need to get circumcised. You need to obey the Mosaic law. You need to get circumcised. You aren't saved until you do uh, the Mosaic law. You need to get circumcised. You need to become a Jew. That's their message. And before long, it doesn't take Peter uh, or Paul and Barnabas long to hear that. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. What are you telling our people? That's not right. Oh, yeah, it is right. And then they get into a debate. And they start butting it. Paul doesn't back down. As a matter of fact, the higher they go in pitch, the higher he goes in pitch. Full fury. Not Barnabas. Barnabas is kind of cowering behind the, and he takes a step back. And, ooh, Paul's getting a little excited and emotional and using strong language and ca- calling people names. And, and Barnabas is starting to waffle. Can you believe that? After two years on the mission field with Paul, witnessing the salvation of Gentiles apart from works, and Barnabas starts to cave. Paul's all by himself. So that's why Galatians... So Paul... So he has to tangle with these guys. We don't know how many weeks or months this went on, but it just got out of control and it divided the church. There was so much dissension. There was smoke flying everywhere. There was great debate. There was a tumult. There was a riot. That's the Greek word. There was a riot. There was an uproar. It was visible to all. It was disturbing to the church till finally they had to get together in an ad hoc committee. And man, we've got to stop this. We've got to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. The apostles, they got to deal with this in Jerusalem. This is dividing our church. This is confusing our people. Paul, will you go? Paul agrees. But Paul, meanwhile, Paul hears more and more. This same stuff, it ain't just going in Jerusalem. And it ain't just going on in Antioch. It is going on in the churches where he just preached. In Iconium, in Lystra, in Derby, in Antioch of Pisidia. Paul's catching wind of it. It is spread like gangrene everywhere. How did this happen? How did this happen? How do these Pharisees know that we're going to all these cities telling Gentiles how to be saved without telling them to get circumcised first? One theory is that after... Paul and Barnabas hit the island of Cyprus. They went 100 miles preaching the gospel wherever they went. And then they got to that pagan governor, uh, Paulus Sergius, gave him the gospel, and he got saved. And then they left and, and sailed 75 miles up the coast. And when they hit that harbor, John Mark bailed. John Mark did not go back to Antioch where he was sent from. John Mark went back to Jerusalem where his mommy was. John Mark grew up Jewish, pure Jew, legalistic Jew, scrupulous Jew, circumcised Jew, 
all things Jewish. John Mark was a young man. The only thing John Mark knew was a Jewish Christian church. He knew nothing else. So for John Mark, as a young man, unexperienced, not an apostle, following in their coattails and seeing all these Gentiles get saved and Paul is not maximizing the importance of circumcision in the Mosaic law, who knows if John Mark was like, wow, what is Paul doing? We don't know that, but it is a theory. Because we do know John Mark went back to Jerusalem and for some reason... All these people in Jerusalem know what Paul was doing on the mission field. That's why they went up there. So there's a leak somewhere. We don't know where it came from. Could be that that's why Paul was so irate with John Mark at the end of chapter 15 at the end of the Jerusalem council. There is no way, Barnabas, I am taking John Mark. Not only did he abandon us, he undermined our ministry. It's just a theory, if you put all the pieces together. Going back to Galatians. So meanwhile, Paul is writing Galatians before the Jerusalem Council starts. He hears about the Galatians compromising, and he says in verse 6 of chapter 1, I am amazed that you Galatian Christians that I just visited and gave the gospel to are so quickly deserting Jesus who called you by the grace, or God, by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you. There are troublemakers in your midst. They're telling you you need to be circumcised plus Jesus. Troublemakers. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's what's the issue at hand, distorting the gospel of Christ. This isn't the timing of the rapture. This is distorting the gospel of Christ. There is no other more important matter. Verse 7. Troublemakers distorting the gospel of Christ, but even though we, Paul and Barnabas, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let them be accursed. Anathema, eternally condemned. As we said before, so we say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received from us, let them be accursed. Strong language. Paul goes on, chapter 2, verse 4. I'm, I'm glad you received me warmly. Thank you. And I, uh, but then I got into a controversy, verse 1 of chapter 2. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Titus was a Greek, and it was because of a revelation that I went up. And I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private, those who were of reputation, for fear I might be running or had run in vain. Verse 3, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Verse 4, but it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. So these, Paul determined that whoever was these some men were, uh, they were sneaky, they were false teachers, they called themselves Christians, yet they're polluting the gospel of Christ because they're adding works to the gospel. That's the problem. You can't add human works to the gospel. Then in chapter 5, Oh, and then Paul goes on in chapter 3. Listen to this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to this warm and fuzzy verse. Galatians 3, 1. You foolish Galatians! Wow. He wrote it down. You foolish Who bewitched you? How are you falling for this Jesus plus works? You're, it compromises the gospel. Verse. He closes the chapter in verse 10. Do not listen to these false teachers who are telling you that you need to believe in Jesus plus circumcision. Circumcision, you know, with a knife on the foreskin, blood. As commanded in the Old Testament, verse 10 of chapter 5, I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. There are false teachers in your midst. They're calling themselves Christians. They're polluting the gospel, and they're saying you need to get circumcised. That is works plus grace. 
That is no gospel at all. And then Paul goes on, inspired scripture, and he says in verse 12, Would that those who are troubling you, who are so into circumcision and wielding sharp knives, that they would even mutilate and cut themselves. This is what he said. Woo! Was that sinful or wrong? I don't know, but it's in the Bible. Which just highlights, again, the severity of this issue. This is the gospel at stake. And I'm going to leave it at that for now, and we'll pick up next week and cover these four points. But vitally important background information. And the, the takeaway for us is just a great reminder. What has been the greatest challenge to the church for 2,000 years? What is the greatest challenge of the church in every generation? What is the greatest challenge of the church here in Northern California and in our church? It, it's not blatant false religion, really. That, that's easily identifiable. It is Christianity mixed with just a little bit of compromise with respect to the gospel. A little bit of poison. You can have a nice, delicious cup of coffee with a little bit of tasteless poison that will kill you. And that little bit of poison is adding any element or component of human works. I don't care what it looks like or how religious they make it. It could be, well, you got to believe in the gospel and it's salvation by grace through faith plus works. It's salvation uh, by grace through faith plus going to church. It's salvation by grace through faith plus getting baptized as a child. It's salvation by grace through faith plus getting baptized as an adult that saves you. You need to get baptized. It's salvation by grace through faith plus becoming a member of a church. Salvation by grace plus reading your Bible. Salvation by grace plus giving up cigarettes. Salvation by grace plus not getting tattoos. And on and on it goes. Salvation by grace plus, here's a verse right out of the Book of Mormon. It is by grace you are saved after all that you can do. Second Nephi in the Book of Mormon. And we even do it in the Protestant church. You've got to get baptized. You've got to be baptized as an infant. You've got to be a part of this denomination. You've got to do that. Oh, communion. That's a, a common one. It's, through, it's salvation by grace through faith plus communion. And that communion mystically is a means of grace. That is a dangerous phrase. Communion is not a means of grace. It's not the way they mean it. That's a technical phrase meaning... It is one of the ways that God infuses his righteousness into us or one of the ways that he forgives our sin. Taking communion doesn't forgive our sin. Getting baptized doesn't forgive our sin. There's nothing you can do or I can do that can forgive our sin. Jesus did it all, didn't he? Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. That's a great phrase to go to lunch on. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the church. Again, we thank you for your word, for preserving it perfectly for 2,000 years for us, the clarity with which you give it to us to understand, especially through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher. We thank you for the gospel by, by which we are saved. Thank you for the reminder from your word to clarify the gospel in our hearts. It's all the work of Jesus on the cross, death, resurrection, ascension on high, and your intercession on our behalf as the great high priest. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our Savior, for those of us who believed in your glorious gospel. God, help us as a church to be discerning and also to protect our church and other believers from false intrusions into the gospel. 
that can come so subtly and dressed up in spiritual language and spiritual religion. So help us to be discerning and protect your truth and be clear when we share this beautiful gospel with those that don't know you that they also might be saved. We give you all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.